Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so that brings us to step six. Uh, Learning my gospel story by which God gives meaning to my experience. Now to this point, most of this material has been a major deconstruction project. We have broken the experience down into factors and impacts and narratives and that kind of stuff. And we have been deconstructing it into smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, and, and hopefully that lets you get to know it better when we break it down into some bite-sized pieces. But you may come to this point in your journey when you're working through this material that you feel like you're a person without a story. All of the unhealthy ways that you've made sense of it have kind of been taken away, but all of the tinker toys are just left on the table and they haven't been put back together into anything yet. That's what this chapter wants to begin to do. It can't make all the sad things untrue. But hopefully we can begin to look at a narrative that allows you to understand yourself, God, your life, and your future in ways that are healthy and hopeful. And we're going to do that um, by looking at five questions. And the first of those is, who am I now? Um, The experience of trauma is not something that we can move on from as if nothing happened. But at the same time, we don't want to believe that this experience defines who we are. Uh, we, we have an identity that transcends the experience of trauma, yet who we are will inevitably be shaped by our trauma. How do we make sense of that? Um, I, I'll give us kind of three phrases uh, that I hope capture that. One, we are both changed and unchanged. That's a both and not an either or. It's not as if uh, the new self can write a letter to the old self and that be a different person and in some way, because there is, there is one soul with one consciousness and one story that is here. And so that, that part of me that is me, uh, that... I am that same person. At the same time, like any other significant event in my life, be it profoundly good or profoundly bad, it's going to have an impact on me. And so I'm, I'm changed and unchanged. And I don't have to choose between those. Uh, Judith Herman here is speaking of somebody uh, who was a war prisoner for a period of time. And she says, even after release from captivity... The victim cannot assume her former identity. Whatever new identity she develops um, and freedom must include the memory of her enslaved self. Again, we hear that aspect of changed and unchanged. Kind of one person, it didn't, it's not like I said, this didn't affect me, yet this has to be assimilated. A second one, and this may be the most important, is I'm strong enough to be weak. Uh, there is nothing that crumbles us faster 
than the sense that we have to be stronger than we really are. And when we are strong enough to come to a trusted friend and we can say, I'm hurting. I saw this story on the news. I had this happen to a friend. I was in this kind of scenario. And things are just tougher for me right now. When I am strong enough to be weak, there is a lot of good that comes from that. Uh, and uh, again, hopefully at this point, getting any sense of insult or feeling crazy or pejorative term away from the experience of post-traumatic stress brings us to the point that we could say, I think I could do that. A third piece is, I'm capable of influential choices. Being strong enough to be weak, weak doesn't mean powerless. We'll get to more of this in step seven and nine, but we can both make choices that counter the impact of our trauma, and we can also pursue the passions that are important to us in life. And those things we should be able to take great satisfaction in. Now, the second set of questions that we come to is, who and where is God? You go through a trauma, you're going to experience a lot of God questions. Um, and our goal is to begin to view God as a refuge instead of an absentee deity. And so one of the things that we see is that God is near those who are suffering. So if you take the classic passages on anxiety, uh, and post-traumatic stress would kind of fit in the uh, anxiety cluster of struggles, if you take the classic biblical text on anxiety, uh, Philippians 4, 1 Peter 5, there is something that is repeated in those that we often overlook. It is the nearness of God. It will repeatedly talk that God is near. And here's the danger of viewing those as just letters, as just prescriptions. God saying, here's what you do when you get anxious. A letter says two things. It says, I have something that I think can help, and I'm not there. If God just gave us a letter, it would only highlight His absence. So in the midst of that, He echoes His embodying presence with us uh, so that we don't take the advisements that He gives to also assume His absence. And a second way that I think it is uh, appropriate and helpful to think of God in these situations is as our pioneer. You know, when we go through trauma, uh, we're thinking, if only there was someone who had been through this kind of hell and made it out the other side and give me a sense of hope that this could be done. Well, that doesn't have to be just wishful thinking. Again, I'll, I'll pull this quote from Diane Lingberg. She says, Jesus is a man of sorrows and intimate with grief. He was left alone, regarded with contempt. He is scarred for all eternity. Now, in heaven, Jesus will be the only one with scars remaining. His suffering has left its tracks across His face. His hands and His feet carry marks of the violence done to Him. 
He was afflicted, struck, crushed, stripped, and oppressed. Suffering does that, you know. It leaves its mark on those who must endure. And then I love this. Jesus was storming the gates of hell even while He bowed Himself to our finitude and brokenness. And so, there is a sense in which we say the Gospel speaks to struggles of sin with Jesus in our place. He bore the penalty that our sin deserves so that we could be freed uh, from the penalty of sin. But I think in a similar way, not because of guilt, um, but we see Jesus in our way as our, Jesus in our place as our pioneer, showing us the way through suffering um, when it comes to how gospel speaks uh, to suffering. A third element of who and where God is is capable of transforming suffering. Not transforming here it would not mean the same thing as eliminating. Uh, that would be much more akin to a water droplet becoming vapor. When you apply heat to a water droplet, uh, the water droplet is eliminated and it becomes vapor. I don't think that accurately represents uh, what God does for our suffering, at least in this life. I think it would be more along uh, the lines of a painful memory of someone that we loved. You, know, you lose a loved one and when you remember them, there is a, a sense of pain with that memory. And then over time, it's not as if that memory goes away, um, but it becomes transformed. Uh, and again, all metaphors break down, um, but as we, as we move from survivor to steward of these kinds of experiences, uh, I think we, we see something akin to that in the way that, that God transforms suffering. Now, a third set of questions would be, where am I? Uh, confidence in your ability to accurately interpret your surroundings is important. Uh, and, and again, when we've been through a trauma, learning to trust the world around us is a challenge. And so one of the things that we, we acknowledge is we live in a dangerous world. Trauma opens our eyes to things we can't unsee. And that's sad. That's part of the loss of innocence. We wish we could go back not to knowing certain things were possible. Uh, at this point, uh, our goal is not naivety. It's not going back to the just blind sense of everything will be okay. But proportionality. We want a sense of proportionality uh, to the potential threats in the world around us. Not one that is magnified through the lens of extremity that trauma can bring, but one that is accurately interpreting this moment for what it is. Uh, a second thing about where I am is that you're not alone. You know, oftentimes after a trauma, there's this sense that no one understands. I've said this before, but hopefully it's... it's makes more sense at this point. One of the things that I hope is the fruit of this material is it gives you a sense that there are people that I could talk to, people who could understand. This doesn't make me off limits for certain conversations. This is not saying a certain sector of my life is just banished to solitary confinement. Um, that you're not alone. And thirdly, you're on a journey. Um, and I think that means two things. One, you don't have to get it all right now. 
there are certain parts of what we're talking about that it's not just the quantity of information that you're coming to, to a short, in a short period of time, but you may say, I just I don't get this right now. Um, but it also means that there are certain things that, that you won't really have access uh, to process until later. Uh, so let's say we speak of the trauma of a young child losing their parent. There's going to be a certain amount of, of processing that experience that that child can access when they're an adolescent. But then let's say that's a boy and he lost his father. When he comes to the point of learning to shave and his dad's not there to teach him, there's going to be an echo of that. And when it comes to getting his driver's license and wanting his dad to teach him on a senior night and not having somebody there and on a wedding day, who gives this woman to marry this man and in just different points where those are things that, that they may not have access to process until those later junctures. And that doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong or that at the early stage what they did was somehow incomplete. It just meant there wasn't the opportunity to engage that part of the struggle until those later elements came along. And so then we come to the question, is hope worth fear? Um, And again, hope is what kind of makes us vulnerable. And we would really like to just go, "Can, can I live without ever being vulnerable again? And so... When I give my first answer there, absolutely yes. We're going to caveat that in just a moment. But at one level, here's the way that I would encourage you to think about hope. Think about hope like a good friend that somebody told you a lie about, and it completely distorted your relationship with that friend for an extended period of time. And then you came later to realize that the things that caused you to dislike and mistrust that friend were not true. Rebuilding that relationship, it might be a slow process. And that's kind of what trauma does. Trauma tells us a whole bunch of lies about hope, and then we begin to mistrust the good friend of hope for an extended period of time, and we need to build that relationship back up again. It, and then we say it's, it's okay to doubt. Uh, this is kind of the classic Mark nine twenty four. I believe, help my unbelief. I think God loves that prayer. Uh, that's not kind of God's JV prayer. That's somebody who is really wrestling to know Him. Yet, Again, if you've come to any of these things, you know I'm a coach and I love, I at heart, Little League sports are there. Uh, When I've got a little guy on my team and he looks at me, he says, Coach, I want to, I just don't know if I can. I love that moment. That is such a precious interaction. I don't look at him and go, Really? You don't think you can get... Not at all. Yet somehow that's how we begin to relate to God in those moments. And then we ask the question, what am I living for? And here, kind of a contrasting set of statements. The same things differently, and maybe some new things. Now that's the whole changed and unchanged aspect in a a different venue. 
If you say, what, what things should I pursue as I process this trauma? Begin with the things that were important to you before. And again, if those things just don't satisfy in the way that they did, that's not necessarily bad. But uh, in terms of personality and interest and gifts, uh, I think it's reasonable to say, I may engage those same things just in a different way. Or there may be some new things that this experience gives me a passion and an interest in uh, that I pursue in a different way. Uh, There's two quotes here from Miroslav Volf. Uh, And and Miroslav, um, he is a wonderful writer. Uh, He was uh, in Yugoslavia. Uh, He was a political prisoner for an extended period of time. Uh, And he writes of that experience uh, in a a wonderfully gospel-centered way. Uh, His book is on the end of memory. And by that he means, after I've forgiven, what do I do with the memory then? Which is something that doesn't get addressed a whole lot. You know, I've been hurt, I process this, I get to the point of forgiving, but I don't forget. What do I do with the memory then? And that was part of what Uh, he wrestled with uh, after the torture of being a a political prisoner. Uh, And I think he does a great job uh, developing it. Two thoughts here from him. He says, we are more than what we have suffered. And that is the reason we can do something with our memory of it. Integrate it into our life story. Turn it into a junction from which we set out on new paths, for instance. All three elements of healing of memories... And his categories are having a new identity, new possibilities, and an integrated life story. Drew their basic content from the memory of the passion. He's talking about the last week of Jesus' life. Understood as the new Exodus. uh, The Exodus narrative, kind of second book in the Bible. Uh, Those are the passages that he uses uh, to recapture a gospel story for the experience of trauma. He says, wrongdoing does not have the last word. If we remember a wrongdoing no matter how horrendous, through the lens of remembering the Exodus, we will remember that wrongdoing as a moment in the history of those who are already on their way to deliverance. Now, he gives another caveat when we talk about this idea of gospel story, that it would be very easy for us to get kind of grand and lofty with how we're going to take every piece of our life and somehow gospelize it. Uh, I think his word of caution here, or just kind of downplaying that, Uh, is a needed one. He says, we do not need for all of life to be gathered and rendered meaningful in order to be truly and finally redeemed. No need to take all of our experiences distinct uh, and company and bind them together in a single volume so that each experience draws meaning from the whole as well as contributes meaning to the whole. It suffices to leave some experiences untouched. Say that daily walk to school I took in second grade. Treat others uh, with the care of a healing hand and then abandon them to the darkness of non-remembrance. Say the interrogations of Captain G, who was kind of his primary interrogator. And gather and reframe the rest. Say the joy and the struggle of writing this book. And so again, as you seek to reframe your experience uh, in the context of the gospel story, uh, I would highly recommend Miroslav's um, book to you. Uh, because I think he does uh, a beautiful job. 